Amen. Thank you, Brogan. So yes, if you could keep 1 Peter chapter 5 open in front of you, I'm going to read that to us now, 1 Peter chapter 5. For those of you that haven't been with us for the past few weeks, perhaps it's your first time here, then a massive welcome to you if you don't know me. My name is Ben and I am the vicar here. Um, which is a real, real privilege. Over the past five weeks, we've been working through a little book in the New Testament called 1 Peter. And it's written by Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, to a group of churches in Turkey. And this is a little um, round-robin letter that was meant to be passed from church to church to church and read out. And we're picking it up today in the final chapter. So 1 Peter chapter 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud and shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety onto him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. And greet one another with a kiss, of love. You can do that later if you want. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So today is, as I said already, is the last in our series of us looking at this fantastic book of 1 Peter. And as we've been working through these amazing chapters We've been thinking about what it means for us to be the chosen people of God. As I said earlier, Peter is writing to the churches 
in modern day Turkey and they found themselves in a really, really tricky situation. They were being persecuted, they were being rounded up, they were being culturally maligned and told that they were on the edges of society. Being a Christian, as Peter was writing this letter, meant that you would suffer, that you would be persecuted, that you would be called names and that you would be ridiculed. And Peter wanted to write to the church to remind them that they were special and that they were chosen. Now, the thing that I have been praying for us as a church family as we've worked through these chapters together is that we would all grasp that we have been chosen and that we are loved by God. Before the world was even created, before you came into being, the almighty creator God had you at the very forefront of his mind and his thoughts. God knew how many hairs you would have on your head. He knew where you'd live. He knew how many breaths that you would take in the life that you would live. He would know all of the things that you would say and not say. God knows all of the things that you have done and not done. He knows all of those horrendous things that you've done, as well as all of those amazingly wonderful things that you've done. And despite all of that, before even the creation of the world, God looked at you, chose you, and said, you are mine. The one thing that I've been praying that we would all grasp is that we are chosen, that God looks at us and says, you are mine. Now that should make a difference to us, right? That the creator of the world looks at us and loves us that much that he has chosen us. And as we've been thinking over the past few weeks, we've been chosen for, for some very specific purposes. In chapter one, we were thinking about how we've been chosen for holiness. We've been chosen to be set apart for God. In chapter two, we were looking at how we've been chosen to live a radical life of discipleship to Jesus. That we're to stand out to the rest of the world and live differently because Jesus has called us to do that. We've been chosen to do outrageous good in the world. We were thinking about that in chapter three. And then last week, we were thinking about how we've been chosen for love. We were thinking about how we're to offer our lives in service to each other, how we're to open up our homes to one another, to practice radical hospitality. And today, we're thinking about how we've been chosen for glory. We're going to look today at how the glory that has been given to us in Jesus can never fade we're going to look secondly at how that glory comes through humility. And thirdly, we're going to look at how that glory calls us to be faithful today. So firstly, a glory that will never fade. Peter uses the word glory here at the beginning of the chapter in verse 4 and in verse 10. Now to get a sense of this glory that Peter is talking about, I'd love it if you could just turn to verse 4 very briefly with me. He says this, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade. 
Did you know that there's a crown of glory awaiting you? You are going to be robed in royal robes. You are going to be robed in righteousness and Jesus will place, will place a crown on your head. A crown of glory. Now the Greek word here for glory is doxa, from where we get the word doxology and other associated words. And the English word glory just does not do the Greek word doxa justice. It can't quite, quite sum up what Peter means. When Peter is talking about glory, the Greek word there has all of, the, all of this following richness and meaning attached to it. The original word conveys honour renown, an especially divine quality, the manifestation of God, splendor beyond comprehension. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about all of those things, I'm thinking about the attributes of God. They're the things that I'd associate with God's character and his attributes and all that he is. And yet Peter says that we're going to be crowned with those very same things. We're going to be crowned with honour and renown and divine manifestation and all of those other things. Because they belong to Jesus and we are in Christ, they also belong to us. These are the things that Peter would have had in mind as he was writing about God's glory. Now, I find that pretty mind-blowing, that one day I'm going to have this amazing crown of glory that I'm going to get to wear. And it's going to convey everything about Jesus. It's going to convey, I'm going to be conveying those things because I'm in Christ. Now, this crown of glory that awaits us will never, ever be taken away. That's what Peter writes about here. Now, the Greek word for will never fade away is amarantion. Now, again, I'm, the reason I'm telling you this, this Greek is not because I particularly know lots of Greek. It's because the Greek words convey so much more than what our English words convey. Now, this, this Greek word here is only used once in the New Testament here in 1 Peter chapter 5. And it doesn't just mean that unfading, the Greek word also means incorruptible. Incorruptible. We've been given something of the glory of God that can never be corrupted. It can never be broken. It can never be taken away from you or from me. Now that has some practical outworkings for the way that we live our life today. It means that no matter what you're going through at home, or at work, the fact that you're a carrier of the glory of God is always true. It cannot be taken away from you. No matter how bad stuff is, no matter how you feel about yourself, no matter what a colleague may have said to you this week at work, nothing changes the fact that you have been given a crown of glory. You're going to receive a crown of glory and it will never be taken away from you. And when I think about this, I think about those lyrics in the fantastic hymn in Christ alone. No power of hell, no scheme of man 
can ever pluck me from his hand. It can never be taken away. Now it gets even better than that. The original hearers and readers of 1 Peter, when they would have read this and they would have seen this Greek word for never fade away, they would have been immediately reminded of the, of, of the amaranth flower. Now this flower was so named because it could last, it could basically last anything. This particular flower could be planted in all kinds of different environments. It could be planted in different parts of the in different parts of the world and it would still thrive it was very difficult to destroy it seemed to just go on forever and ever it was really hard to kill it was resistant to disease it could even be revived when watered if it had been uprooted for a very long time it would just spring back into life my nana once gave me what she told me was a resurrection plant and it was this really ugly ball of what looked like a dead pile of well, seaweed really and twigs all combined together. And um, she told me it was, it was a resurrection plant and all you'd have to do is stick it into water and it would just spring back into life. I've still got it to this day. She had it for decades. It's in our utility room back at the vicarage. And literally, if you put this thing in a bowl of water, it literally uncurls in front of your very eyes and just unfurls. It's absolutely amazing. Now, what Peter's original hearers would have understood, what Peter was conveying to the early church is this. The glory of God outshines anything else. And you're a carrier of the glory of God. Did you know that you can be uprooted? You could move to the other side of the world. You could move for a new job. Maybe you've just moved to Newcastle to study or for a new job or because of family circumstances, whatever it might be. You can go through a really difficult season and the same glory that belongs to Jesus is still yours. And it is yours forever. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you have gone through, the glory of Jesus is always yours. C.S. Lewis wrote a fantastic book on the glory of God. He has lots to say on it. And one of the things that I love that he wrote is this. Each day, this is for those of us that are in Jesus, each day we are becoming a creature of splendid glory. Did you know that's true for you? That every single day, you're becoming a creature of splendid glory. That's how God sees you. I don't know if that's how you see yourself. But when God looks at you, he sees an ever-growing creature of splendid glory. Now, some of us have come to church today and we're feeling pretty beaten up. We're feeling tired. We're feeling exhausted. Circumstances in life are just beyond our control. Those things do not define us. God looks at you and sees a creature of splendid glory and says, you're chosen and you are mine. 
And here's the thing, church. We don't have to wait until Jesus returns to live in the light of his glory. This isn't just something that's awaiting for us when we die and we're resurrected to new life. We can be carriers of the glory of Jesus right now. As one very eloquent and esteemed theologian put it, following Jesus is not all pie in the sky when you die. You really can have cake on the plate while you wait. In other words, the resurrection, the resurrection life of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, everything that belongs to Jesus isn't just waiting for us in the new heaven and the new earth. We can walk in it right now. We're carriers and containers of God's glory right now. Again, C.S. Lewis on God's glory wrote this. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the world darkness on the walls of his cell. But God wills our good and our good is to love him. And to love him, we must know him. And if we know him, we shall in fact fall flat on our faces. Not just when Jesus returns, not just forever in the afterlife when, we, when we're in heaven and the, and the new earth. This should affect us right now. So I guess the question then is, well, what does it look like for us to walk in some of this today? Well, Peter tells us a little bit about that. If you look at verses one to seven with me, Peter tells us, and this is my second point, that glory comes through humility. So look at verses one to seven. They're all about humility. Peter is addressing different groups of people in the churches that he's writing to him, and he's giving them some very practical advice on what it looks like to walk humbly. He addresses church leaders he addresses young and old, and then he addresses the whole of the church family. We'll look at all of them, even if you think, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not an elder. It does because you need to hold me to account for living this stuff out. So let's work through these verses together. So in verses one to five, he's writing to elders, to church leaders, and he says this. Watch over the flocks that you've been entrusted with and do so with care. In other words, those of us that are called to church leadership are not called to lead by power, by demanding that people submit to us, by thinking that people should just follow us because of our gifts or our, or our talents, and sometimes we're deluded about those anyway. We're called to watch over the people that we've been called to lead with care. If I do anything but that, please tell me. And then Peter says, those who've been called to be elders in the church must do the work that they've been called to, not because they must, but because they are willing. Not because they have to, but because they really, really want to. Now, church, I've got to say this. Whenever I see you, I have never, ever once thought, oh my gosh, I must go and spend time with these people. Oh my gosh, I must go and minister to them and pray with them or teach them the Bible. Honestly, 
is I, whenever I think about this fantastic church family, I always think what a joy and privilege it is just to be a tiny little part of it. What a gift that I am able to do this. It's a joy and it's a privilege. Peter then goes on to say, don't be in church leadership. Don't be an elder for financial profit. Do it just to serve. Now, I can tell you now that we're an Anglican church. We've, I work for the Church of England. There is absolutely no danger of any of us doing this for financial profit with the Church of England pay structures. But Peter's making the point that you don't do it for anything other than to, for a life of service. The call on my life and for all of us that have been called into leadership in the church family is to constantly put other people first and just to serve. And then Peter says church leaders are to point to Jesus not by lording it over people but with the example of their lives. Now I don't take that for granted. I know that part of why the Church of England give me a stipend is so that I might and I don't always do this well but I might in some way be an example of what it means to follow Jesus to the rest of you. Again, that is a huge privilege and a joy. Now, the reason I know that only a handful of us in the room are elders in the church, the, the reason that I think it's important for us to still go through, the, through these verses together as we're thinking about humility and that being the pathway to glory is this. Church, if I am ever not like what Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 5, if you ever think that I'm in this for my own gain or for financial profit or lording it over people rather than being a good example or, or just doing it because I have to rather than because it's a joy to me, then I want to tell you that you have full permission to challenge me on it. If you think I'm doing this just for my own selfish ambition or gain rather than what Peter's describing here, you can please just come and tell me. As I've been preparing this, I really want to be the kind of, kind of church leader that Peter is talking about here in 1 Peter 5. But I won't always get it right. I will make mistakes. But as family together, I just want to say, if you, if you ever see me doing any of these things that Peter's warning, warning against, please, please come and tell me. Those of us that are called to leadership, and this is now true for all of us, whether we're a leader in the workplace, whether we're a, a leader of a team at church or a small group or a ministry, um, leader of a family unit, whatever it might be, all of us should be aspiring to these things. None of us should be looking to lord it over anybody else, but to serve with humility, to be an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus every single day. Now in verse 5, Peter goes on to say, those of us that are younger, submit to those of us who are older. Again, there's great humility in that, isn't there? In us knowing that we don't, we don't have all of the answers, that there's people that have walked this earth much longer than us, and that we should posture ourselves in humility before them to learn from and to, and to glean all of their wisdom and all of that kind of thing. And then he speaks to the whole church in the second half of verse 5, and he says this, all of you clothe yourselves with humility to one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. 
Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. All of us are to be clothed in humility towards one another. And church, this isn't something that we should have to work really, really hard to do. We're clothed in humility because we've been clothed in Jesus Christ. That's a gift. Jesus clothes us in his royal robes of righteousness. He clothes us with everything that belongs to him. He puts on us, including humility. And therefore, humility should be a given for us, for those of us that are following Jesus. It's only not a given when we step out of alignment with God and we begin to try and do things our own way or we put ourselves before other people or whatever it might be. Two weeks ago, as Mim was preaching, she quoted C.S. Lewis, who again wrote this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but of yourself less. That's the call on all of us as we model a life of following Jesus, to think not less of ourselves. That's actually another form of pride, but we don't have time to go into that today. But just to think of ourselves less. So what does it actually look like for us to be a people of humility? If this is the path to glory, and remember, Jesus is crowned with many crowns now, um, partly because of what he did in terms of going to the cross and suffering for us and then rising to new life. He was given after that the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You can read more about that in Philippians 2. But if this is the path to glory, how do we live it out today? How on earth can we clothe ourselves with humility today? Well, just some um, thoughts from me about how we can, here at St. Thomas's, be a people of humility. Firstly, we should be a people who give thanks. A people of thanksgiving. The Bible tells us to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, when we give thanks to God, we remember that he is the source of all of the good things in our life and that everything belongs to him. Being a person of thanksgiving keeps us humble before God. And it's, it's good practice to thank God even for the little things in your life, for the breakfast that you had this morning, for the roof that's over your head, for the family that you've been given or the friends that you live with. Thank God for everything and it's a constant reminder that he is the giver of it all and that we're not at the center of our own world. Another way that we can do this is to give thanks for each other. As we give thanks for each other, we remind ourselves that every single person in this church is a gift from God. And again, giving thanks for other people reminds us, reminds me as I do that, that I'm not at the center of my own world either. Other people, I should be putting other people first. I wonder, church, if we could be a little better at giving thanks for each other. And not just doing it in our quiet time, well, that's a good thing to do, but to actually tell each other that we're thankful for one another. When you see someone serving, maybe for the first time, or you see somebody maybe struggling or having a, going through a difficult moment, just go up to them and tell them that you're giving thanks for them right now. Let's be a people that practice this publicly. 
because everyone here should be being given thanks for because you're all wonderful, unique people created in the image of God. Let's practice humility by giving thanks to God. Secondly, we can be humble as we're a people who are open about our shortcomings, our weaknesses, and our sin. As, we do, as we're open with one another, as we don't walk around pretending that everything is okay and that we're perfect, we're practicing humility with one another. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but one of the things that I really hate is when somebody says, are you okay? And then um, the other person answers, yeah, I'm okay. And then the conversation ends and you move on to the next thing and it's just you know, surface level talk that doesn't really mean anything. We all have a deep desire to be known and loved and seen. But that means that we've got to show all of ourselves, and accept that none of us are perfect. Glenn Packiam wrote this um, in a book, Blessed, Broken, Given, which we talked about quite a bit last year. But he wrote this. We need a community of people who know us and who love us even in our brokenness. And who will call us to repentance for our failures, for the things that we've done and for the things that we've left undone. We need a community that leads us in confession. This, by the way, is one of the reasons that we have a um, liturgical confession quite often in our services. Because it reminds us of the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We confess our sins together out loud. Glenn Packham goes on to say, we need a community to lead us in confession and we need a community to remind us of God's grace. As we confess that we are weak and not perfect, it leads us back again and again to the grace of God. Confession is not just about sin. Confession is about opening ourselves up to God, but also to each other. Confession leads to vulnerability, to honesty, and humility. It's not just our sin that we need to confess, it's our limitations, our weaknesses our, and warts, our fears and our fragility. And he ends by saying this, and this is what I'd really love us to live out. The church is not a community comprised of those who have something to give and those who need something. The church is not just about people who have their lives together and then those who are broken. The church is a community of mutuality where our brokenness becomes a way to open our lives up to one another and allow God to meet us with his grace. Now church, we can only do that if we actually practice being open about our vulnerabilities, our, lead, our, our limitations and our weaknesses. Don't just let people see the shiny parts of you. Your life is not a constant Instagram um, account where you get to filter everything with your, with your favorite, I know I do this, you know, filter everything with your favorite filter on, on Instagram and just choose the highlights, the bits that you really want to see. People are not seeing the real you. We're called to be a community that's vulnerable and open and open about our shortcomings so that we can generally, genuinely see one another and love one another. That's one way to practice humility. Another way is not to worry about hierarchy or position or status. 
doing that is not going to get us anywhere really at all. I've said this so many times and I'll say it again. I am not more important in this church than anybody else. If you're following Jesus, you are a full-time Christian minister as far as I'm concerned. It might not be in the 24-7 in the city center of Newcastle, but you are in full-time Christian ministry if you're following Jesus. Whether that's in your workplace, a school, your family, your street, your university, whatever it might be, you are in full-time Christian ministry. One job is not better than the other. The only reason I think that I've got the best job in the world is because God has called me to do this job right now. I hope that you find something where you feel that this is the best thing as well. But no one job is better than the other. I am not more important than anybody else. In fact, you're all far more important than me. The other way that we sometimes use hierarchy and status and all of those kinds of things is we use people to move ourselves up the social ladder. We think if only I'm seen talking to that person or if I'm seen in that person's small group or if I'm seen doing this with that person, then maybe my social status will be elevated. Well, that isn't humility. That's just being incredibly selfish and using other people for our own advantage. There's nothing humble about that. When God looks at us, he loves us all equally. We're called to do the same. There's lots more I could give, but I'm going to run out of time. So last tip on us being um, humble together is to ask questions. Ask questions of one another. Now, this is something that I've been learning to do increasingly over the past few years. And a few people have been teaching me, even in the past few weeks, the importance of asking good questions. Nick Barnsley's very good at this. And I'll tell one story um, yesterday from the Alpha Holy Spirit Day that reminded me of this. So Ellie and I have just come back from a few days annual leave. And yesterday at the Alpha Holy Spirit Day, Lizzie Novak, who's one of the Alpha small group leaders, came up to me in one of the coffee breaks. And instead of just asking how are you? Did you have a good time away? She asked some fantastic questions. So she walked up to me and she, the first thing she said was, what was your highlight and the favorite thing about being away with Ellie? And what do you think Ellie would say if I were to ask her the same question? Now suddenly that changes it from did you have a good holiday and just me being able to give a one word answer for me actually having to think about what was the highlight about my holiday and what do I think Ellie's highlight was at the same time. What it does is it shows genuine interest in me rather than just asking surface level questions. Asking questions shows that we want to listen to the people that we're talking to, we want to learn from them, and we want to get to know them. Now at church, I'd love it if our small groups were full of, instead of just surface level questions, going deep really quickly. When we're having a cup of tea and coffee at the back of church, rather than just asking those surface level questions, ask probing questions that show you're genuinely interested in the other person, that you're humbling yourself before them because you see them as a person of worth who you want to get to know. Two questions that Nick asks me on an almost daily basis, definitely weekly. What do you need from me this week? And how can I bless you this week? Now, again, they're just two very simple questions, but it's so much better than just asking how I am. What do you need from me? How can I bless you? It shows a position of humility before me that Nick is genuinely, genuinely wanting to serve. So I, I just mentioned those two because they've taught me a lot about asking, um, asking important questions. Let's ask questions of one another to practice humility. 
Now, this also should apply in our workplaces as well. We don't compete for position at work. It's not like we're all scrambling to get up the career ladder, but we should genuinely serve our colleagues and the teams that we're in as if we were Jesus in that workplace. What would it look like for Jesus to have your job? What would it look like for Jesus to serve the people that you've been called to serve? What would it look like for you to put them first on a daily basis? Because church, this is what the glory looks like. This is what walking in the glory of God looks like right now. Serving others is glorious because this is exactly what Jesus did. Now, Peter has this strange verse at the end of this section. Lastly, cast your anxiety onto God. It seems to just come out of nowhere, doesn't it? So he's been talking about humility. Cast your anxiety onto God. The reason that we can do this, cast our anxiety onto God, is because if we practice humility, we're thinking of ourselves less. We're thinking of other people more. That might make us a little less anxious about ourselves. But also because Jesus has already done all of this for us. He's modelled what it looks like and he calls for us to do the same. God can take all of our anxieties and all of our worries and all of our pain. He's big enough to deal with it all. He's glorious enough to deal with it all. Now we've run out of time for me to talk about my third point. But that's fine. Maybe God just wanted us to think about humility today. You are being transformed into a creature of glory to look like Jesus. Now we'll just have 30 seconds of quiet now just for us to begin to think about how we're going to put this into practice. What two things are you going to do differently in the light of these verses from 1 Peter 5 today? How are you going to practice humility in your workplace? How are you going to practice humility in this church family? How are you going to hold me to account for these things that Peter is writing about? What two things are you going to do practically on the back of this that's going to make a difference not just to you, but to you being a creature of glory and you doing that with other people? I'll just give you a few seconds to think about that as the band come up. And as a sign that you want to commit those things to the Lord, can I invite you just to stand if you've got those two things in your head or you're at least beginning to process some of those things? How are you going to live differently as a, as a result of this? And don't feel like you have to stand just because everyone else is.
Church, I don't know about you, but I genuinely want to live a different life as a result of these verses. I want to be someone that practices these things. Someone that walks in humility as I'm clothed in humility. I know, though, that I can't do that by myself. The reason that I'm I'm being transformed into a preacher of glory is because I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is working in me and using me and transforming me. And so we need the help of God to walk this out. We cannot do it in our own strength. So I wonder if we can do some ministry with one another where we seal these things in our in our lives so if you're confident and happy to do if you're not just tell the person next to you that's absolutely fine Um, but why don't we pray for one another that we might be able to walk this out and live this out so you might just want to turn to the person next to you if you don't know them um, or you're by yourself or you want somebody else to pray for you then feel free to make your way to the front I'd love to pray for you Brogan I'd love to pray for you and let's just begin to ask the Holy Spirit to remind us that we are creatures of glory Let's pray for the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit to help us to live this out.